Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, the founder of Roland Ransfield PR. With National Storytelling Week coming up, I wanted to reflect on some of the stories you've heard on We Built This City. Stories inform our view of the world. From the fairy tales we're told as children to the films that stay with us, you get to hear new stories every day and they all go on to help us navigate the world and form our own. In the next couple of episodes, you're going to hear from previous guests who have told their stories about the people and the places that built Manchester. In this episode, you'll hear about people, everyone from celebrities to normal people, and normal people who are actually pretty extraordinary. Telling great stories is definitely the mark of a mank. And one person who knows that really well is the poet R. Kidd, otherwise known as Dave Scott. Dave joined me recently on We Built This City, and as you'll hear, what inspires him is the storytelling that happens in everyday life, not just on the stage or screen. I spent a lot of time at my mum's parents growing up. They were like Irish from uh, County Cork and Roscommon, I think my, my nan was from. But just the pubs as well, like obviously you know, the stereotypes comes from somewhere, doesn't it? For an Irish community group in Lemesium. But the pubs you'd walk into there and the characters and the stories you'd hear, just from domestics that were going on at home to people that do these like really hard working old Irish men that were had hands the size of shovels that has been spending all day digging on the roads and stuff and they just you didn't need a jukebox and this is again what I mentioned before about being a 42nd street and the the inspiration of lyrics over music is that you didn't need music in them bars you could just listen to the stories even as like secondary you know air wigging and stuff like that I mean you'd probably if you weren't attuned to the the Irish accent, you may need subtitles <laughs> in some of the situations. But um, yeah, it was just, it's just fascinating. It just opens up, especially for me and my imagination, it just opens up worlds of possibilities about how you can take that situation and then either make a poem about it or a song or a screenplay. And it's just my mind sort of, it sees things or it picks up on stories and then it'll just sort of open up this whole weird world I mean I sound completely potty now looking at you I can't look <laughs> <laughs> but that, that, that's what it's like and then and just yeah you'd walk amongst all these sort of different walks of life and stuff but it wasn't just the, the Irish community again like I've got like mates who are from so many different cultures my best mate Nathan his family's from a Jamaican background so that yeah, you've got that influence mm-hmm. as well and like a, a black culture was huge influence in me when I was growing up and then when I was listening to hip hop music they were the way they were telling stories was a lot more sort of relative than the pop music because at that time there's no internet so you don't have Spotify and you don't have the the access to this world of music when you're buying tunes it was always an investment so you're not you know to spend your 15 quid oh, I'm gonna have a gamble there not new Britney Spears <laughs> no. CD. you know you're not, you're not gonna do that so you, you stick to what you know and then once we were sort of passing around bootleg tapes of Tupac or Biggie and stuff like that that was always and, and you're a young lad growing up in a in a rough area, uh, you're going to be attracted to the, the sort of danger in the lyrics and stuff. And you know, when you're a kid, everyone loves hearing a swear word and a song and stuff. So that that, that was an attraction. But um, just telling all these sorts of stories, and that's always been a massive influence. I love how Dave draws on the chats of Manchester and how that sparks so many ideas for him. His poetry really does capture the stories of people who are woven into the fabric of this city. Capturing Manchester stories is hugely important and we don't always capture everything we should. Broadcaster Karen Gabay thinks we need to do more, especially to document black history in Manchester. I've done a lot of stuff on Manchester's history um, on no budget or kind of low budget and uh, and people have gone off and 
you know, use that as a platform and, and, you know, still miss out the women like myself or, you know, I've had a lot of people contribute to it and, and I'd like to do it with a proper foundation and kind of recognition because I have interviewed many people from Manchester or I've got links to Manchester and to showcase that. And I still want to do more about Manchester. The reason why I want to do Manchester's history is that, um, as I say, I know a lot of people in London, a lot of people in Birmingham, and when they want to do a project, it's, you know, it gets a lot of support. I've done projects and archive projects. If I go to London now, supported by record labels, people from the areas that I kind of grew up with, it's supported massively. You know, mm. I showed a film in Notting Hill. Everyone came in the lunchtime from all the record labels, from, you know, all the parents came, everything. And they really get to document stuff at their art galleries, on film, in festivals. I feel, whether people like it or not, that Manchester is way behind Birmingham and London for doing it. Mm. Um, Manchester was always happy to have something in an art gallery. That was mm. it, you know. Mm. And I was saying it's not documented on film. And when you look in the archives, it's not documented in film. People approach me now and say, yeah, you've got it. It's on there. No, it isn't. I mean, people, of course, have filmed it. There are a lot of people still with it in their attics. You know, I'm not in denying of that. That happens everywhere. It's a lot's missing. Um, and um, and yes, now people are sharing and telling the stories, but there's a lot of history. You know, the contribution, even the black contribution to Manchester's history going back 200 years still not been documented. I'm hoping you'll get to hear stories on these episodes of We Built This City that wouldn't be documented otherwise. It's great to know you've got people like Karen in Manchester who are so passionate about making sure that diverse stories do get told. One person who knows the best way to sniff out an exclusive story is the journalist Shalina Begum, formerly from the Manchester Evening News and now at Business Desk. As you'll hear, the best stories don't always get handed to you on a plate. I sort of started my foundation in local journalism, in local newspapers, and going back 20-odd years ago, you'd um, spend often hours at a council meeting or going through council papers, and it'd be hundreds and hundreds of um, sheets of paper. And in there, you'd find some really, really good gems. It could be a planning um, application, and it's an interesting um, building that's going up in your local town, and it'll be hidden somewhere in like 200 pages. And those are the ones that make the best stories. And I think that's really given me a good base for... Who I am today because I learned the old-fashioned way <laughs> and then it wasn't social media it was going to those meetings and meeting might start at six o'clock you're there till 10 you've got two stories but they'll be really good two strong stories that you'll walk out with um I spent sometimes weekends going to community group meetings might sound a bit boring now but you met people, people spoke to you, people sat down with you and they will tell you stuff that you wouldn't otherwise know about. And that's because I personally used to go to those meetings to get those stories. And I mean, that's, that's how we did things back then. And that's how, you know, local papers were. That's why people bought the Rational Observer, for example, because we had 15 odd journalists doing that day in, day out. So stories matter. If you take the time to listen, you can hear them in the poetry of everyday life. There are many stories that still need to be documented and you can find brilliant stories in unexpected places if you just look hard enough. Justin Eagleton is a brilliant example of someone who brings together tales of Manchester people. Justin's an artist. 
His mural at the print works in Manchester City Centre illustrates iconic Mancunians like Tony Wilson, Elsie Tanner and his mum and dad, who for Justin were the stars of the whole show. But as you'll hear, his picture was very nearly hidden from public view. The print works mural that I did started out as a very small thing. Again, I was commissioned by the print works because the bee was in the print works. So I struck up a good relationship with Fred in the print works, God rest his soul. Um, Fred Booth, who did amazing things for Manchester and charity in Manchester. So he became a very close friend. And that hurt a lot when he passed on because he really supported me. Um, and he just said, can you do one of your pieces of artwork, which I've seen, put it in our boardroom. And when they come in, you can have your name on it, whatever. We'll shout about you. And lots of people will see it, lots of the, the high-flying business people of Manchester and beyond. So I created this piece, again, got emotionally connected, did it over about three months, went in, presented it. And literally, I just it was just silence. They were like, and Fred was like, I've got goosebumps. And the, the impact of just a piece of artwork, and he said, we've got to get this where people can see it, which was probably what I wanted to hear, really. I was like, please put it on the outside of the building. It'll just be... I want it to be in a position where, and it's nothing about me, it's more about I want this to be in a position, if it has that effect on you and gives you goosebumps, I want people to see it and give them something that they can take away from it. And I don't care if I never see it again because I've been looking at it for 12 months. I want to be able to, people have that first impression. So eventually it took best part 12 months to facilitate and bring together. I got all the photographers involved. We had Ian Tilt and Paul Husband. I even contacted Jill Fermanovsky, who's very famous for shooting Oasis pictures, uh, and Paul Wolfgang Webster, and I worked with them and again built up relationships with these people I'd never met and got some of their archive photos and put them within the artwork. And it just became a snowball and it ended up as this piece of artwork. And, you know, two months before it was unveiled, I'd managed to show it my dad in that time when he was really suffering from cancer. It sort of helped me through a time in my life that was very, very difficult. Up to the end when he died, he died on July the 1st, two years ago. And the idea was we were going to unveil in that month. So we pushed it back to October. And in the time, the three months, I literally, and I suppose or even up till now, I I put everything into working harder every day, I suppose, because it stops me from falling over and helping other people. Because if it stops them from falling over, it gives me the feeling that it's as a mental health thing, it's really good, a good thing to do. So... When we unveiled the artwork, I had all my family there and Clint Boone was good enough to come and unveil it in the print works. And I put my mum and dad's, they would have been celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary in that month. I put my mum and dad's wedding picture digitally into the artwork so that for me, it was it was almost a nod to my mum and dad. I mean, 60 years is incredible. You don't get that for, for murder. That's crazy. Um, and they... The unveil of it, nobody knew except me and my wife. And when they pulled the sheet off, I stepped back and the, the flashes were going from the cameras and everything. And I could see my little my frail mum at the bum, and my mum at the front, and somebody pointed out to her that she was in the picture. Um, and it's just that I then cried because I know what it meant. You know, I'm welling up now talking about it, but I know what it meant to me, but almost what it meant to them. And the impact it had on them as a family and as my mum, because we are a very close family. And my mum and dad are now on the streets of Manchester forever within this mural. And nobody knows except me and my family and people who walk past and go, who's that black and white picture there? And to me, it doesn't matter. 
you know, they'll connect with Oasis and the Corner or Stone Roses or the Bees or Peter Kay or anybody. But for me, it's that little image of my mum and dad with him. That's such a wonderful story and such a legacy, isn't it, really, for the city and for your family? Yeah, it's amazing. Absolutely. And if anybody listening to this hasn't seen that mural, you should definitely take the time because we don't go into the city centre enough at the moment. But if you go and have a quick a quick injection yeah. of Manchester by looking at that wall. It's on Danzig, yeah. it's on Danzig Street at the side of the Printworks. It really is worth going to check out Justin's mural. On it, you'll see everyone from Oasis to Rowetta to Tim Burgess, and lots of great Manchester celebrities. One of the famous faces in that mural is the late Tony Wilson. Manchester's culture would not be where it is today without Tony's legacy. As you'll hear, someone who Tony had a direct impact on is much-loved broadcaster Eamon O'Neill. I loved being in front of the camera, I preferred live programming, and I met my hero there, Tony Wilson, who... I'd watched, you know, as a viewer, I became a colleague, I ultimately became his boss, ultimately had to ask him to leave for swearing during the three o'clock afternoon bulletin, but that's another story. But, you know, Tony Wilson, um, he's, he is one of my heroes and he, and he was a mentor and he didn't have to be. I was a new kid on the block, new presenter. Uh, he was the first one to come and seek me out and say, I'm Tony, come and have a coffee. We did, and he said, I'm presenting. Um, do you remember he presented on a Friday night uh, up front with Lucy Meacock? Mm. He said, come and see me, and uh, how, how we prepare that, how we do that. Sit in the gallery, sit with me. He was just the most amazing, selfless, kind, generous human being. Obviously, everybody's got their own view on Tony Wilson, and uh, he's got that kind of, had that swagger, obviously, and the sense of superiority. But behind it, he really cared about talent. He really cared about our world. He cared about Manchester. But he cared about the people. But I never forgot the fact that he took me under his wing. I'm filling up a bit, actually, uh, because he didn't need to do that. You know, he didn't need to help. That story has the essence of many Manx in it. We care and we give back. Let's face it, Manchester's no stranger to a celebrity story. You'll have heard plenty of them in this podcast. Let's hear from Diane Bourne, who, as diary editor for the Manchester Evening News, is full of celebrity anecdotes. So tell us some of those stories that you might be able to kind of you sit around a dinner party table and everyone wants to know. There must have been some caucus. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, people like to know about, you know, the kind of the, the big stars, I suppose. Well, what's what's amazed me over the years is, is the the big stars you've met in random places. Um, like the first time I met Lady Gaga, it was in Wally Range. She was doing this <laughs> random... Um, it was a charity initiative. She was doing a bit of painting on a wall. But she turned up in this massive hat created out of blonde hair. Um, and just just crazy. I mean, that was it was just before she was, like, massively famous. And there was other reporters there. And she was but she was just so strange. And you, but you just knew that she was someone special because of just those weird cookie answers she was giving. Um, but, yeah, she was supposed to be painting this wall, but she, she literally came in with this tiny little brush and just sort of dabbed dabbed it like that on the wall and then was like uh, thank you to my fans thank you to my fans she was um, quite unusual but again in later years she would come back and uh, you know she stayed at the Lowry and then she went to Affleck's Palace she's someone who wanted to She, you could tell she was someone who wanted to explore the city yes. and get to the, sort of the underbelly of the city yes. and really understand it um, so we'd find her in you know quite unusual places um, and a bit like um, Snoop Dogg as well um, 
when he came to Manchester and he went to Oddsaw. Oh, oh, I call it Oddsaw, but I, I know locals. Oddsaw. Oddsaw. <laughs> um, he was there uh, again at a youth club. And um, I remember chatting to him about Corrie. And he um, he said he was a massive Corrie fan. And this ended up being a, a big national story. Everyone t- you know, took the story from, from the MEN on this one. And I just thought, I, I don't know whether I believe you on this. You know, when you think it's a PR stunt, does he really watch Corrie? So this is what I always say to people who say they're a fan of Corrie. I say, oh, so who's your favourite character? And he said... Fred Elliott. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, he really he really is a fan of Curry. This is super weird. But yeah, so um yeah, but he was he was there with Rio Ferdinand and, and I've never seen anyone play football so badly as Snoop Dogg. He could not kick the ball. It was hilarious. So yes, that was a good one. Um I suppose someone like Liam Gallagher, again, because he's he was such a big hero in, in when I was younger. So to meet him, I was thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be, this could either be really good or really horrendous. Thankfully, the first time I met him, he was absolutely lovely. He's another one, Curry, you know, we wanted to talk about Curry. So I was like, who's your favourite character then if you're, if you're big into Curry? Uh, and he said, Fizz. Fizz, right. she's the one. So again, you, you yeah, sort of know if, someone, <laughs> you know if someone's a real fan. But um, yeah, I mean, but thankful. I mean, I was so starstruck, but, you know, he, as I say, thankfully, he was, he was really lovely. But then... Well, I've interviewed him quite a few times um, and sometimes he could be lovely and sometimes didn't, just didn't want to talk to the press mm. at all and you could just tell. Someone else with a fair few celebrity stories is the events planner and brand consultant Liz Taylor. Liz is full of stories about Manchester people, whether they're celebs or not, but her tale about becoming friends with Gary Barlow is a great example of what I think of as Manchester brass neck. I think the event that has to stand out for me was the 2011 Children in Need dinner because that was a massive turning point for me in business. Not in such a not not, and we're we're talking about sort of personal challenges and and direction. I'm not necessarily talking financial. I mean, I've always run the business like a rod of iron, and it's allowed me to have a team of staff that have been looked after and you know had a nice standard of living. But the Children in Need in 2011 was bizarre. And I don't know whether I've even got the time to tell you the story. Have I got the time to tell you the story? Well, I will tell you the story anyway. It's, yeah. I got a phone call. It was, an, it was another phone call. And a young lady said that she was coming up to Manchester and she was looking at a venue because her, her boss was going to organise a charity event. And for some reason, I never asked her name. The call had been put through to me and the call had come through as a charity event. So I asked her, she she was coming up the following day and I said, can I meet you? And she said, no, I've been given three companies to investigate and you're one of them. So I got into sort of chatting as I could and I said, where are you going? She said, well, I'm going to walk up to the Hilton. I've got a meeting there at 10 o'clock. So, well, if you're walking up to the Hilton, then you're walking up from Great John Street. She said, how do you know that? I said, because you don't really sound like a premier in type of girl. And she said, well, I would be walking up from Great John Street, but I can't get in. I said, okay, here's the deal. I'll get you the room at Great John Street. You meet me at the Hilton at 10 o'clock. I phoned up Tiffany, who was the director then of the hotel. I said, Tiff, I've got a hunch. Don't ask me what it is. I don't even know a bloody name. I said, but I need a comp room for tomorrow, for tonight or tomorrow night, whenever it was. She had no problem. I phoned the girl back and I said, it's Liz here. I've got you the room. It's complimentary on the provisor that you meet me at 10 o'clock. And she was absolutely gobsmacked that I'd managed to get a comp room at a hotel that was supposedly full. 
And she said, yes, I'll meet you. And I said, what's your name? And she gave me her name. And I said, and what's the event? She said, oh, it's for my boss, Gary Barlow. It's for children in need. Well, that was another slide to the floor moment, as you can well imagine. And um, But you know what? It just it, it demonstrates what I've always, always said. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And by that, I don't mean in the celebrity world or it's for everybody. I can walk into any hotel and I can talk, I'll know the name of every concierge, every front of house, every cleaner, every board, whatever job they do, because at Marks and Spencer's, you had to do everybody's job. And I'll know them by name. And I'll ask them how their kids are, not because I'm being patronizing, but because they have been my friends and they've been my livelihood. And they're the ones that, that they're the ones that, that promote the brand. And um, yes, yeah, so I met her and uh, that was me a mega. And I went down to the first meeting was, was in Gary's uh, recording studio. You know, I tried to be really cool in my black suit and, you know. <laughs> And we sat down and there were five of us. There were three from the BBC. There was him, there was his PA and there was myself. And he said, um, he said, I think we need a car, he said, to put in the auction. So somebody piped up. Yes, well, we've got a connection with Mini or Fiat or whatever it was. So, you know, Billy Big Shot here thought, I'm going to just pull this out of the bag. I'll worry about it afterwards. I said, no, 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 no. I said, I can get a Bentley. And he looked across at me, Gary, and he said, you what? I said, I can get a Bentley. He said, to auction. So I said, yes. And that was it. I got the Bentley. And uh, it went for a quarter of a million pounds. And we've been mates ever since. I think maybe because he wants a Bentley. I'm not sure. A free one. I don't know. But anyway, we've been mates ever since. We're a city known for our football the world over. But you know that when it comes to football, the stories you hear aren't always going to match up with what goes on behind closed doors. And that's why I want you to hear this story from Gary Neville about Sir Alex Ferguson. I think it really illustrates the leadership that existed at Manchester United at that time. Because I was the PFA delegate from 23 United, uh, which is the union delegate, but also I was the captain from the age of, what, was it 29, 30. I used to go and sit in with most of the young players that were being released by Sir Alex Ferguson, which is a horrific experience. You're taking a young player's dream away. He All he wants to do is play for United. It's all he's ever thought about. And at the end of the season, each season, there'll be a group of young players that will be called into the manager's office and told they've no longer got a future at United. And you can imagine for a young person, that's a really difficult message to have to take. And rejection, particularly when you set, set your sights on sort of what would be this great dream, it's gone. So I used to go and sit in there, but Sir Alex, he didn't beat around the bush. You know, he would tell them directly, look, son, you know, you know, I've got six players in front of you in your position and I don't believe you'll break through in the next couple of years. You need to go and play somewhere else. Um, so I won't be offering you a new contract at Manchester United. And it would be told to them in a sort of very, you know, direct manner. He wouldn't fudge anything. He wouldn't sort of shirk it as you would expect. He had confidence and he had authority. But he said, what I have done he said, I've spoken to three or four managers at clubs that I know really well. And I want you to go and speak to those managers because I think they'll give you a contract and I think they'll give you a, f a career back into football. And one day I hope that you can come back here and prove me wrong and you can come back and play for Manchester United. But you need to go at this moment in time and play somewhere else. So as he was giving them probably the worst message that they could ever re receive in their lives, he was also giving them a leg up and making sure that they had a chance to go and prove themselves somewhere else. So that 
was a continual education for me in terms of how to deal with people that were leaving your company, your club, your team, that you had to make sure that they had a soft landing. So that's something that I think that I've got quite good at in my business sort of world. I don't just sort of leave people to go and say, oh, you're out the door or tell other people they've got to tell them, uh, particularly the people that work closely uh, with me. A lot of people have connections to our clubs in Manchester. Geraldine Ryan is an award-winning lawyer and she's well known for working with Wayne Rooney. As you can imagine, she's got quite a story from that experience. One of the things that I, I am known for having acted on Wayne Rooney's dispute with his management company and that was absolutely fascinating in the fact that we went to trial on that and um, going into court with Wayne and his mother and fighting through a scrum of the world's press who had no idea what the case was about, but they knew mm. that it involved at Wayne. And just trying to get Jeanette's mum through this mob of people who were then, and Wayne was going in to give evidence in this case, and people were trying to get him to stop and sign autographs. And to actually be in that melee, and then you have to walk into a courtroom, and it was in Manchester in front of Brendan Hegarty, his honour judge Brendan Hegarty, and the courtroom, biggest courtroom in that civil justice centre. And it was packed and there were people sat on the floor because there were some members of the press, not the cameras, but, you know, the, the written journalists were allowed in. They were all sat on the floor and we had to walk over people's legs. I have never been in a courtroom where there's been so much interest in something. And by the vast majority of the people in the room who had no idea what the legal principles we were there for, they just wanted to see mm. whether Wayne would be able to answer questions under pressure mm. in that environment. And he did. And and at the time, I remember thinking as we were leading up to that, how's he going to fare? And I went out for a run. I used to do quite a bit of running. And I was, you know, gosh, you know, it must be quite intimidating. And then I remembered, <laughs> this is Wayne Rooney. He goes running out in front of all those people mm. at Old Trafford. And he then gives interviews mm. to the press after a match. I think he'll be all right. And he was. He was excellent. So, um, yeah, the lesson there was press interest in things. Yeah. And knowing how to deal with the press, it's quite... Uh, and I do quite a bit of work around reputational risk mm -hmm. and dealing dealing with the press. And the understanding or the lack thereof of what the actual principles are. And therefore, when you're reading anything in any newspaper, and by that I include not just the tabloid press, mm -hmm. but the broadsheets, they don't often get it right. And when you're involved on the inside of a case and you know what's going on and you see what's printed and you're thinking, but that's not what happened. Mm. And so often I'm thinking when I'm reading about another case that might be um, in front of the court, so, you know, the Johnny Depp stuff or whatever that's always, you know, those kind of things are all over the front of the papers. What we're reading has probably got nothing to do with what's actually mm. going on in the hearings and what the, the legal principles mm. are. So it's um, it's a bit weird. It's really interesting to hear from Geraldine about the reality behind the stories that are reported in the press. When it comes to the story of Manchester and its people, whether they're born, bred or adopted, at some point you need to hear about Sir Howard Bernstein. I love this story that Sasha Lord, Manchester's nighttime czar and founder of Festival Park Life, has about Sir Howard when he was still the chief executive of Manchester City Council. I think uh, Sir Howard Bernstein, after the original IRA bomb, yeah. he was the architects for the city. There, there are some, obvious, clearly, obviously, Andy Burnham. Mm -hmm. um, there's some incredible people who've come through Manchester. 
Um, and it's weird. We're all sort of interconnected. It's just so bizarre. Someone told me something once about there's a seven-step rule or an eight-step rule or how you can get to someone. I think in Manchester, it's a two-step rule. What I really love about the city is the fact that once you build a relationship, as long as you look after it, it's there forever. Yeah. I mean, I remember coming out of the last recession. It had been horrendous. And I was on the train going down to London and I looked up and how Sir Howard was walking down the thing to get off. And he just nudged me and went, you're right, love, you're still here then. And I just thought, you know, people remember you in Manchester because you've, you've been good to them and you've done stuff for them and helped them. Yeah. It's always there. There's massive loyalty. Sir Howard, um, I think it was 2009, Wales Budget was fully licensed, mm. but we didn't realise we had to have planning permission as well. And we had a call from the planners to say, um, what do you think you're doing with this car park? Like, what are you talking about? And it was a week before the season was about to start. We'd sold out completely. It was live on Radio 1. I think it was Pete Tong or Annie Mac, I can't remember. And he said, no, you can't operate. We were sold out. And it's live to the whole of the world on Radio 1. So we managed somehow to get in front of Sir Howard and we sat like two little naughty schoolboys uh, eight in the morning outside his office. And he turned up and he sat down. We explained, he just said, oh, that's nonsense. Made a phone call and that was it. Really? And we did put the planning in at yeah. that point. But his view was just so pragmatic and common sense. Yeah, good guy. Yeah. I don't, a- he doesn't. His wife doesn't like me, apparently, because on the first part life, uh, she caught someone wing in a garden. <laughs> uh, so now when it happens, we have steel shield all the way around it. She can't escape for the weekend, so she probably hates me even more. Oh <laughs> So you've heard stories about Manchester people, the great and the good and the famous and the not so famous. And you could say so much about the big names in Manchester and how they've added to the city's story. But Manchester is built of those people who contribute and change things from the ground up, whether you've heard of them or not. I really want you to hear this story from Sid Williams. Sid is the founder of the homeless charity Embassy. But before that, he did lots of youth work which is where he learned that community can be found in the most unexpected of places, like a double-decker bus in North Manchester. For the Message Trust, I started with the job part-time. I was part-time painting and decorating still, um, and part-time uh, doing youth work. And they had, this, they had this really cool, enormous bus that they'd got off stagecoach, free of charge, I think, and um, they'd converted it into a youth centre on wheels. I joined that and they were already doing a project in Anfield in Liverpool as well, one day a week, um, heading out there. And the police there were saying, oh, we get 20 to 30 emergency call outs for youth based crime per night. <laughs> and they said, when the buses hit, it's normally zero call outs. And we were working with the children of sort of renowned gang families and so on and, and sharing that there was a different way to do life and that God loved them. And there was forgiveness and a second chance. And a lot of these kids, when you said, what do you want to do when you grow up? They said, I want to go to prison. Why? Because my dad's there, my brother's there. Da, da, da. So we were sort of readdressing some of those aspirations. At the peak, we were serving upwards of 10,000 children a year. It was, it was quite remarkable. And always working with local churches and, and almost always police. And in every single city, on every single project, crime dropped every time. And one of the most remarkable was Mersey Bank in South Manchester, where after the bus had left, even a year later, the police said, we've sustained a 50% drop in all crime since the bus has been here. Just mums off the estate after they dropped their kids to school would just come and volunteer. And, and we tried to run a mothers and toddlers, which we did, but it became mothers, toddlers, local drug dealers, bored old people, <laughs> just everyone. We'd have like 70 people there and we couldn't fit them all on the bus. So we'd sort of sit out 
on chairs in a circle and remarkably it didn't rain on a morning for, for about like a year we managed to get away for a year that's amazing for manchester the local housing association said this is great we love what you're doing but there's a big problem on the estate with a sort of gang of young men that you know they were just dealing drugs and stuff but now they've got firearms and there's been a few sort of guns let off and issue and now residents are from the resident association they were anxious about going to the shops even and the, from the police point of view they had crime targets to meet of course um so they said can you also run something specifically for that gang on an evening so i said yeah i can but it'll cost you this and they said that's fine and then they said oh do you do you have to talk about god though while you're doing it and i said well listen a it's my motivation i said but b how bad would it really be if i won't say his name because you know we get on all right but so and so and his gang all became Christians. How bad would that really be? You know, they would have to love their neighbours as themselves, which is quite good for, you know, community cohesion. And they'd have to stop stealing and they'd have to follow the Ten Commandments. And they'd stop being isolated because they'd have this group of people around them called the church. And there's this sort of eternal, ever-present CCTV system called God that they're being watched by. <laughs> so, I, And they went, yeah, actually, it'd be great if they became Christians. So I was like, cool, well, let's do that then. And I got my friend Nick, who's uh, who used to be a drug dealer and a gang member, and who, who became a Christian and is a very talented professional rapper now. And he just came down, and they wrote music together, and they were, and we, and we had a laugh. And we just ordered dominoes, and, and we had guys saying, "Please pray for me. I need to change. Help me get out of this, and help me get into just a regular job." And so I think I was just like, "Oh, some of these guys are just here because they can't see a different future for themselves. Yeah. That's all it is." Sid does so much great work with the people of Manchester and he does that by going to them rather than expecting people to come to him. Taking his bus to those different places in Manchester made all the difference to his work and to his communities. In the next episode of We Built the City, you're going to hear stories about Manchester places, but I wanted to leave you with this little chat with John Thompson about the person who I named my business after, Roland Dransfield. Roland Dransfield, who is that? So Roland Dransfield's my godfather. Okay. And he discovered my dad under his car in a in a garage in yeah. South. My dad was a mechanic. Yeah. And he saw something my dad and took him under his wing. Okay. And it was Roland Dransfield Engineers. Yeah. And they ended up having the business on Trinity Way in Salford. Brilliant. And then when Roland died, I, I took the name. I wanted to call my business after him because he kind of embodies all the values. Plus, yeah. he put me in business. He came to my mum's house one day and said, you've got a car washing around. Go and wash some cars and then you can pay me back for the bucket and the sponge at the end of the day. And I did. And that was it. And my pocket Fantastic. money stops. Yeah, yeah. So he's a set of work ethic early. It's yeah. brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, and he's a proper yeah. self-ordian. He was oh, kind yeah, of rags to kind of riches. Thanks for listening to this special episode of We Built the City for National Storytelling Week. We Built the City will be back on the 3rd of February for another storytelling special. If you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head to rdpr.co.uk. Or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or Twitter at rdprtweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built The City. And if you listen on Spotify, you can rate us on there now too. Just look for the three dots underneath the We Built The City picture and it should give you the option. Thanks so much and see you next time.